open with me the book of Acts. Chapter 1, in, in verse 12 is where we're going to begin, but just to start off, we looked last week at the beginning of the book of Acts, in the first 11 verses, uh, and there we saw that Jesus was with his men at Bethany, a small town on the backside near the top of the Mount of Olives. I've got a slide here of Jerusalem, I think. There it is. All right, this is Jerusalem in the first century. Uh, if you'll see right in the center is the Temple Mount. Uh, it's a big red outline around it. And to the right, this is the, there's the Mount of Olives. You can't really see the topography here, but immediately to the right of the Temple Mount is the Kidron Valley. That is a deep ravine, but it is, is if you notice that the roads that are there curve up around the top of the Temple Mount and come around, it's because the, the ravine is getting shallower as you go. By the time you're in front of the Temple Mount, it's very deep. Uh, there was a bridge called the Bridge of the Red Heifer in the first century, it's not shown here, that went from the Mount of Olives to the entrance to the Temple at that time. Anyway, so there's the Temple Mount and then this deep ravine called the Kidron, which again, it's, it's going uphill and it gets shallower. So, and that's why the roads curve around the top because it comes up to the surface up there. Uh, and then on the other side of the ravine is the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane, as you see here in small type, is right off the bottom of, uh, the, the base of the mountain. It's on the Mount of Olives, but it's right near the base. You could re- literally stand in the mount, in, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane and look straight across and see the wall to the temple. So going out beyond that, going up over the ridge of the Mount of Olives was a town called Bethany. Talked about that a bit last week and it's sort of uh, picking up where we left off. So they go from Bethany to the upper room and we're going to see that this morning. The upper room, if you look, it's in the lower left, kind of in the lower left middle. And there was the lower city and then there was an escarpment and then there was the upper city. This escarpment was, it was sort of a, a, a very steep incline. Uh, remember, Jerusalem is built, it's nestled in, I believe, seven hills. Uh, when I went to the upper room, I was able to look down. There are buildings in the way, but you would be able to look down and God's design for the temple was not to put it as this big majestic building up on top of the mountain. It is on the top of Mount Moriah, but it is designed to where you could look down on it from any angle and see and look actually onto the top of the Temple Mount. Beautiful sight in the first century. So just want you to have an idea of how we're orienting here uh, geographically. I, I, I know in my own studies, I do better when I have a place to locate uh, with whatever I'm studying and it, it helps to kind of flesh it out for us. So they've been in Bethany, uh, Jesus and his men, and they want to know if he's going to set up his kingdom right then. We talked about that last week. Uh, and all I'll say about that this morning is that his answer would be swift and concise. He said, it's not for you to know, period. <laughs> but then he says, here's what you do need to know. And he tells them about uh, that what they need to do at this point is to return to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to look at that next week because next week we're going to get into Pentecost. But this morning, we're going to talk about the upper room. Their time from the time they leave Bethany and traverse across the city and get to this building where they're going to meet with 120 people. 
and uh, and we'll see some interesting things that take place there. So after Jesus tells them to wait for this, the Holy Spirit, and again, they didn't, I mean, if you're churched, you understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You understand that there's this experience of the Spirit's empowering in your life. However, they had no point of reference. They knew that Jesus had breathed upon them, the disciples. They're, the first thing he did when he resurrected and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they were kind of thinking, well, I guess that that's it. That was for him to begin to fill them up. And over these last 40 days, and then on to the 50th day, which was Pentecost, he's been pouring into them. That was not for them to be poured out, because that's the effect of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is that, yes, we are indwelt by the Spirit, and they were, and that's where it says that he opened their minds to the Scriptures, he opened their hearts, they understood things that they had never understood before. So he tells them to return essentially to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Spirit. So at that point, we see Jesus taken up, uh, literally levitating off the ground. That would have been fun to watch. But he wasn't taken simply up into the sky. Uh, I mentioned last week, I believe he was taken up into the cloud of God's Shekinah glory into heaven. Uh, remember the two guys were standing there and they questioned his men because they were, I'm sure, gawking. I mean, wouldn't you? Would your mouth be on the ground? I mean, you're watching this guy go up. And the angels say, what are you looking at? Paraphrasing, but they, they essentially say, what are you looking at? <laughs> essentially, he's gone. His earthly ministry is now complete. Uh, and, and then Luke's gospel gives us detail, which uh, add color to what we see, or, uh, see uh, here in Acts chapter 1. In Luke 24, the very last couple of verses of Luke, it says, Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, I love this, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. End of the gospel of Luke. So these guys were excited. They, think about it, they'd been through the grinder with Jesus when he was arrested and then crucified. They'd scattered for fear of the Romans and the Jewish leaders, and only to discover the third day that he'd risen from the dead. Now, after the past 40 days, they had uh, sat. Uh, during this time, I mean, during the 40 days, they sat at the feet of the Master. Uh, again, their hearts and minds open to the scriptures as never before. It's fair to say that God was doing a tremendous new work in the heart of each man. Uh, the Holy Spirit's indwelling work had become evident. But there would be more. Yeah, it's an awesome thing to be given understanding and, and wisdom and insight into God's word and into God's kingdom. And as much as Jesus, as I mentioned, poured into these men... Uh, these past nearly six weeks, uh, it would time, it would become time very soon for them to be poured out. They would be, the Holy Spirit would come upon them because there was work to do. Uh, they would end up forsaking their own lives upon the altar of service to God. Remember we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 
which every single believer gets at the moment of their conversion. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit or baptisms of the Holy Spirit can come after. And sometimes it's simultaneous. Sometimes it's later. But it's always for service. It's empowering for service. It's the Holy Spirit coming upon someone because there is something that God through them wants to work. So let's start in verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So after the ascension, the men travel, what's called here a Sabbath day's journey, which was, that was a known distance in that day. Uh, if I were to tell you, okay, let's walk about six blocks, that's a known distance. That's sort of what's being said here. Because the just, the distance that a Jew could travel on the Sabbath was about 2,000 cubits, or steps. Uh, a cubit, 18 inches roughly, about a foot and a half. Uh, and that was the, the max that the rabbis set, that one could walk on the Sabbath and not break the law of Moses. They had rules for everything. So uh, what Luke is saying here, not necessarily these guys were observing that, but he's saying that because it's a known distance, about a Sabbath day's journey. So, uh, by the way, looking at that map that I had, I made a measurement in Google from just east of the, the, the top of the Mount of Olives to the wall of the city, which established the eastern boundary of Jerusalem, and uh, it's about 3,000 feet, 2,000 cubits. <laughs> so uh, it was definitely a Sabbath day's journey. So verse 13, he says, And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. And then, and then Luke lists the apostles here. He says, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Not Judas Iscariot, he's dead. But Judas, the son of James. So, well, some assert this couldn't have been the original upper room where his disciples uh, gathered here uh, as they waited for the promise of the Father. Uh, I disagree. I, I don't think that they say that because there isn't room there. And if you remember the title slide, there's plenty of room in the upper room for 120 people. Uh, yes, the upper room that that I showed... Ethan, can you bring the title slide back up? The upper room that I showed uh, is the it's it's the location of the original upper room, but it's actually built on top of the original upper room. Uh, this was built during the Byzantine era, and uh, the ruins of the upper room are below it. So, but geographically, the place fits. It's been. Um, Traditionally referred to as the, the place where Jesus met with his men and then the uh, disciples, the apostles met later uh, as they waited for the spirit to be given. So anyway, you can go with either one. We really don't know, but it fits that it would be the same room uh, because it's larger than that which the 12 could would have been able to fit into. Uh also, I mentioned last week that the book of Acts could be called, the uh, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it could be called the Acts of some of the Apostles. <laughs> it's because Luke, on purpose, includes a list here of the 11 that remained after Judas's betrayal. And for many of these guys, this would be the last recorded account of them. You don't hear from them anymore. Uh, but it was important for Luke to name the 11 because he's setting up what was to happen next. So 
in verse 14, he says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So verse 14 marks the first use of the term with one accord. And it's an important statement. Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, what this word means is that it's, it means a strong unity. And if you know about these guys from the Gospels, they were anything but unified most of the time. They squared off against each other. They argued with each other and with Jesus. And they just didn't get along all that great. Uh, to the point where I believe that part of the restoring work that Jesus did there at the Sea of Galilee when he showed up and had breakfast for the guys was to not just restore Peter to himself, but to restore Peter to the rest of the men because he had asserted, I'm not like these guys. I'm your guy, Jesus. I'm the one. And I think he probably ticked him off. Anyway, so the Greek word here is uh, homothumadon. Uh, and what it means is one mind or common consent or unanimous agreement. These guys were in one accord. They totally agreed 100% with why they were there and what they were doing. So, uh, and it's also, this term is significant. It's used 10 times in the book of Acts with one accord. Uh, it's important for Luke to portray that the work of God was being performed by men who were in one accord with one another, also in one accord with the Spirit of God. So in this context, they were united and unified in prayer and supplication. That's what it says. They were there. They went to the upper room there in prayer and supplication. Now, what does supplication mean? Simply, a prayer of supplication is a prayer with an urgent need praying for F, the Ukrainian people. That's an urgent need. That would be a prayer of supplication. Lord, please use these ministries to to reach in and, and get a hold of the people that you want them to get a hold of. Lord, we, we beg you to, to go and to do that work. That's a, that's a prayer of supplication. So what would be the urgent need here in Acts chapter 1? Again, remember Jesus' instruction. Return to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Their urgent need is for the Holy Spirit. Uh, And this is a group, as we'll see in verse 15, of 120 people who had come to trust Christ, who had been filled with, had been indwelled by his Spirit. Uh, However, they had yet to be empowered by his Spirit. Thus, their urgent need, their prayer of supplication. So along with his men, there had also been a group of women who followed Jesus. He says the women and then Mary and so on. Uh, and, and there was a group of women that just that were part of Jesus's following. They were part of the people, the group that followed him when he traveled around, when he w- was serving as an itinerant preacher going from one town to the next. And we see those women in the Gospels. We also see them at the resurrection. We see them at the crucifixion. So uh, that's what he's talking about there. Now, among these women was Mary, Jesus's mother. And, and this is the last place, by the way, in the scripture where we see Mary. Uh, she doesn't show up after this. And church tradition has it that Mary uh, ended up in Ephesus with the apostle John. Remember from the cross, he said, woman, behold your son. And, and he said, behold your mother to John. 
to the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself there. And John went on to be the pastor at the church in Ephesus for, I don't know, 30 years, whatever. Uh, and so it's, it's traditionally thought, there's nothing in the Bible, it's traditionally, traditionally thought that she ended up in Ephesus with him uh, after he had been commissioned to care for his mother. It's also significant in verse 14 that we see Jesus' brothers. <laughs> they evidently have come to faith uh, after the work had been completed at Calvary. Now, in Mark chapter 6, we see that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Uh, we know from Mark chapter 3 that his brothers thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. And Mark 3.21 says, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So Jesus' brothers initially rejected, and then later evidently came to accept the work that their brother had done. And now think about it. What would it be like growing up with Jesus? I mean, <laughs> I think about that. Would they have heard repeatedly, can't you just be like your older brother? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. But I do know that, that the Bible says very little about that. We see the one incident where he, his parents find him at the temple and all, but uh, we don't know much about his life. Growing up, other than he had a number of siblings, he came from a large family of half-brothers and half-sisters. Verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names is about 120, he has in parentheses, and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. So Luke adds the number 120 in parentheses here uh, for clarification. He wants his readers to know the size of the group praying in the upper room. He, he Yeah, we know that the 12, the, the, the 11 are there, not the 12, but the, the 11 are there. But Luke wants us to know this is a big group. So another first here is this is the first time that we see Peter quoting the scripture. So at some point <laughs> during uh, the, this 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost, Peter speaks up. We don't know how far into this 10 days they were, but I want to note that Peter's assuming here a leadership role. Uh, however, I want, I want to be clear on this. His calling was to be one of the chief apostles was just that. Uh, it was his calling. There's nothing in the scripture, nothing at all, that uh, that describes this as a calling to be passed down in unbroken succession through the generations, as we see with the papacy, with the with the succession of popes. It's unbiblical. It's not. It's not right. It's not correct. I mean, if you wanted to get extreme about it, you could say Peter was the first pope, but he would be the only pope because it wasn't something that went on from there. Anyway, so he speaks of the scripture being fulfilled uh, concerning Judas. He, he, so he's when he talks about this, guys, and, and I want you to just have a mature approach to this. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not straying off into blasphemy. I promise. But what he's saying is that Judas didn't spoil God's plan; he fulfilled it as the son of perdition, the son of hell. When he speaks of the mouth of David, he's referring to the Psalms. 
and he says so in a couple of verses. But uh, here, it, it, talking about the Psalms in Psalm 41.9, uh, we read, Even my own familiar friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread. Remember, when he was betrayed, he dipped his bread with Jesus there at the Last Supper. Who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Fascinating. I mean, there are tones of Judas's betrayal. There are also tones of the fall of man where God pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve. He says that he will lift up his heel against you. So Peter's intention and his motive here are clear. Uh, in accord with the scripture, the vacancy left by Judas needs to be filled. That's what he's saying. Verse 18, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his entrails gushed out. Thank you so much, Luke. <laughs> That's just gross. I mean, I'm thinking about roadkill when I read this. It's just like gross. Anyway, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is a field of blood. Fascinating. So once again, Luke adds parentheses for clarification. Verses 18 and 19 are one giant parentheses, uh, this time about Judas's death. Now, controversy. There's a lot of controversy over verse 18, because when you compare it with Matthew 27, 5, we read, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. Remember when the, the religious leaders gave him the money. It says he threw down the pieces in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So how do you reconcile that with Acts chapter 1 that tells us that Judas purchased the field? Matthew 27 says that Judas left the money in the temple. And, and people get really hung up on this stuff. And I, I want to bring you some reassurance, I hope anyway. A couple of ways that we don't know. All right, uh, first off, <laughs> where the scripture is silent, so ought we to be. And, and I have no trouble saying, I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile that. I'll throw a couple of things out there that are plausible. It's entirely plausible that the religious leaders, seeing the money was blood money, that they deposited or dis- they d- disposed of the money uh, in purchasing what would become known as the field of blood. Possible. It's also plausible that Judas had second thoughts. Threw the money down. Remember, he was a money guy. This is over six months' wages. He may have simply picked it back up and gone and bought it. Don't know. Uh, as we look at the manner in which Jesus or Judas died, Matthew tells us that he hanged himself. Acts tells us that he fell headlong and his guts spilled out. How do you reconcile that? So the discrepancies between these accounts raise a number of questions, uh, obviously. The most common of which is, how can both be true? Here's my best guess. Uh, Matthew describes how Judas chose to kill himself. And Luke describes the final state of Judas's body. Uh, prostrate, on the ground, eviscerated. Now, the Greek word for burst open, and this is interesting, I was doing the word study as I prepared for this morning, the Greek word for burst open indicates to burst from internal pressure. Is that a hint? I don't know. Could it be from decomposition? Perhaps. Stacy and I were walking on the beach not long ago, and there was a dead cow that had washed up in the surf. <laughs> it was like, I said, oh, go poke it, of course. 
Mr. <laughs> Mr. Wonderful here. <laughs> and it was like, because this thing was swelled up. I mean, there was pressure from the decomposed cow, and we did not get near it. I think I took a picture of it, though. Um, I'm sorry. I just that's that goofball side of me that <laughs> she's like, "What are you doing? I'm taking a picture of the dead cow on the beach." Uh, at, at any rate. The simple truth here is we don't know what happened between the time Judas hung himself and the time that the final disposition of his body was known or discovered. We just don't know. But there's a greater point that I want to make in all of this. Matthew and Luke report Judas's death in different ways. But they do so for discernible reasons, and the extent of those reasons are not fully known to us. However... An important principle emerges here from these considerations. Uh, The tensions in the Bible are not contradictions. Understand that. I'll say it again. The tensions in the Bible are not contradictions. You know, you could, we could sit down and you could give me a whole list of supposed contradictions. And I would respond to you with those are tensions. There is, there, there is, uh, there's a disconnect in, in understanding both sides, but that doesn't mean that they don't come to bear somehow. That I haven't figured it out doesn't mean that God's wrong. That's my point. So they're not meant to be explained away. And I, you know what, when I, when I, especially when I study passages like this, I read a whole bunch of different people. I probably have 10 commentaries on Acts. And oh my goodness, the things that they say. You know, that <laughs> you know, one guy had him, going up onto a cliff and jumping off onto a large spear and that that's how he hanged himself because that's the Greek word for hang is to jump off onto this large spear and and it, it causes gust and it was like, stop. <laughs> I love being able to say, I don't know. And if you, if you and I talk and you ask me something about God's word that I don't know, guess what? I'm going to say I don't know, but I do know this. The Bible's ultimate author is trustworthy. Uh, We don't need to worry about a detailed investigation of its contents and what that might uncover. You can trust that God's word is inspired. God breathed. That's the word that we see as Paul writes to Timothy. The point in all of this is we simply need the confidence and persistence to hang with the text rather than to grasp at quick and easy solutions. Another thing I want to mention about that is that something that the Lord does that I've noticed in my own life, uh, especially in growing up in another religion and all, and is that God always leaves room for unbelief. Why? Because the just shall live by faith, period. And if I'm going to wrestle over things like this, I'm just going to be destined to wrestle. It, for me, it's a settled issue. They they both come to bear somehow, and because I don't understand all of it, doesn't mean that it's not true. Verse 20, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and no, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Now here, Peter quotes from Psalm 69, which says, Let, another, or let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. In Psalm 109, verse 8, 
let his days be few and let another take his office. So Peter is quoting the scripture here and he's coming up with a, a scriptural foundation for the assertion that he's making. We need to appoint another guy to replace Judas. He backs up his assertion with scripture. That's always a good idea. Now he goes on here and he starts to describe the qualifications for apostleship. So what is this guy? I mean, we're not going to just go pick some guy off the street corner. Yeah, I walked into 7-Eleven and said, you're an apostle. You know, whatever. That's not going to happen. But remember, he's in a room with 120 people. Verse 21. Now, therefore, one of the men, uh, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, uh, the Lord Jesus went in in and out among us. Uh, beginning with the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he first makes reference to the men who had been with him all along, going all the way back to the Jordan River when John the Baptist was baptizing, and then forward to the ascension that we see here at the end of Luke and in the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, the last half of verse 22, where Peter says, one of these, uh, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection, meaning one of the 120, is where I personally believe he begins to veer off course. There's a couple of ways you can look at it, and you may firmly believe the other way, and you are totally welcome to do that. I mean, that's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share both. Uh, the first way to look at this is this is part of God's plan. And that casting lots for Judas' replacement is biblical. And that Matthias was ultimately God's replacement for the 12th apostle. And that works. You can make that work. Now, along with that, the casting of the lots is a very definite Old Testament principle. And it's found in many places throughout the Old Testament. That's one position. The second position stems from the broader context of remembering what had taken place over the last 40 plus days. Being now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Jesus had been pouring into his men. We've talked about that. Their hearts and minds uh, have been open to the scripture. We know that. Uh, they were walking in greater understanding than they ever had. We know that. We see here, uh, evidence in Peter quoting the scripture. That wasn't his habit prior to this. <laughs> Peter was act, then think. That was the, the nature of his life. And he's saying, look, we need to, we need to look at what the scripture says. However, at that time, the time hadn't come for them to begin to pour out. They don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit which would come shortly at Pentecost. Now, he, the other thing about that is Jesus had given his men specific instruction when they were at Bethany to go to Jerusalem and wait. He didn't tell them return to Jerusalem and appoint a replacement for Judas. Again, many say that this is fine. This is just part of it. Uh, and I want to be clear. I, nobody can fault Peter for wanting to get this right. Uh, no one can fault his motives. They were sincere and they were pure. I believe that. I believe that Peter loved Jesus and that his motives were absolutely aligned with what he thought God wanted to do here. However, there's a difference, church, between motives and methods. Think about it. 
Now, Saturday before last, uh, when we were going to the men's conference, we were talking about this passage. Uh, and I shared with the guys then, I said, you know, let's say that our church was in need of a new elder. Let's say I, as a pastor, have been in prayer. and praying, Lord, I think we need a new elder. And I've been looking at the qualifications for an elder from the pastoral epistles, which lists a whole bunch of things there. And I've been in conversation with our board as to that need, checking all the boxes. All of those are good intentions. All of those are good motives. They're godly motives. However, if I announce that I prayerfully narrowed it down to a couple of guys and, and, and in our congregation, and, and what we're going to do after service, we're going to go out in the parking lot after church, we're going to pitch pennies <laughs> to see who this is. Would you question my methods? I hope so. There's a difference between motive and method. I, I also want to note that, and to be fair, casting lots was an Old Testament thing. There's a lot about casting lots in the Old Testament. Uh, but the only other place, other than here in Acts chapter 1, where we see that in the New Testament, is when the soldiers in the Gospels were casting lots to divide Jesus' garments. That's it. It doesn't show up anywhere else. I also want to talk about God's method here, the method he would use for the 12th apostle, in my opinion, would be to knock a Christian killer off his horse, blind him, radically save him, reveal himself to and instruct him, and then use him mightily in the foundation and furtherance of Christianity. That was God's method. Verse 23. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know all the hearts of all, should show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. (laughs) So here are two guys from this 120 people who filled the bill. He's essentially saying, hey, Lord, I'm giving you two choices here (laughs) for this guy. How generous, right? Uh, So they've narrowed it down between Joseph and a guy named Matthias. Now remember, both of these are godly men. And Peter prays a sincere prayer. These are the guys that had walked with Jesus. And and, (laughs) uh, I I don't want to minimize that. I only take issue with what appears to me to be a very narrow method which Peter employs. In their defense, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. They, again, they have no idea. They have no working point of reference as to the power that they would soon receive. I mean, we read the end from the beginning, gang. These guys didn't have that luxury. Verse 26, last verse in chapter 1. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So, take your pick. This could legitimately be the replacement for Judas, the apostle. And yes, he's referred to as an apostle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Judas, the apostle. Think of that. Or we see here a remarkable aspect of the grace of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If that's the case here, and the thought of Peter's heart was pure, 
and good. And the intention of his heart was to sort of help God. We see the Lord deals with him very graciously. God essentially says, okay, Matthias, it is. We don't see a rebuke coming from the Lord here. Uh, But also God would know that his own choice would come down the road. It wouldn't be from this 120. It would be from an avowed enemy of the cross. We see Peter here exercising leadership to which he was called. Establishing a biblical premise, which it was. Praying sincerely, which he did. But departing from the instruction that Jesus had given to wait for the Spirit's power. Folks, we can lead off in our own power. We can lead off with a, a, a godly motive and engage in something with a totally carnal uh, method. I want to see souls saved. I truly do. And I believe that, that the Spirit of God uh, will be poured out in these last days. And I pray for revival. I pray for all of that. The last thing I will engage in in this church is a carnal method. We're not going to fill the place by, I had a guy come in here and tell me, you know, you need a projector that'll go across the entire back wall so that when you play the music that people have a, a really cool deal. And, and you need to bring in musicians that know how to do contemporary. And you need, and, and it was like, no, I, I don't, I don't feel called to that. I, I want people to get God's word. I want them to have opportunity to worship, whether we're worship, worshiping to a music track or to a live person. That's whatever. Uh, yeah, I have my preference. But the point is, I don't, I won't employ a carnal motive to build the church. It's not my job. Jesus there at Caesarea Philippi with his men asking them, who do men say that I am? And, and, and Peter saying, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, P- and Jesus saying, aha, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father. And on this rock, I will build my church. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about it at all because I don't. I have absolutely good motives for this church. I have good motives for the kingdom. I have good motives for your and my lives. But I don't want to mix that with carnal methods. I think this is a disaster and there's a lot of that going on out there and I don't want any part of it. So leading off in his own power, leaning on his own understanding, Peter would make a human choice and employ a human method. Matthias would indeed be numbered among the apostles. Uh, but I want to mention a couple of things here as we wrap up. First, Matthias is named here and never mentioned again. He disappears from the pages of Scripture. Second, Paul, uh, the apostle, refers to him himself in 1 Corinthians 15 as one born out of due time. He's talking about his apostleship there. And he's saying, yeah, I wasn't with the original 12, then 11. I'm the apostle that was born out of due time. I came later. But he does not minimize his apostleship there. He confirms it. Lastly, the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, we see 24 thrones and 24 elders. And they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. There aren't 25 thrones. In Revelation 21:14 we read now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. I believe these give clear evidence that there were 12 in the beginning, there're 12 in the end. 
And I look around at the 21st century church, I believe there are a lot of sincere motives in place, mostly by well-intentioned people, not always. Regardless of where you fall regarding the appointment of Judas replacement, it's important for us to know that part of the equipping we have from the Holy Spirit is that of discernment. He says, discern the spirits. Be discerning. Be sure, to the best of your ability, that the motive and the method line up, that God's in it. I could go on, I could talk about King Saul and, and the fact that between the motives and the method, I mean, there's a bunch of examples, but we're out of time. <laughs> and I just want to make sure that you understand it has to be lining up with the word of God and, and that it has to be bathed in prayer. And we'll soon see here in the book of Acts through the, the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, it has to be something that God is in. Years ago, there was a book uh, by a guy by the name of Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. And his whole instruction in this book was keep to the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel message. And when you're discerning what it is that God wants to do with you or through you, don't just name something and then go out and invite God to become part of your program. That's a recipe for disaster. When I look at opening this convalescent ministry and, and, and the things that we're, we've been in prayer for for a long time about, I want to test the water. I want to see if the Lord's in it, if he's directing it. Just the fact that this woman called back and said, come down, I have a bunch of ideas that from Marquis. I mean, it's like, Lord, what are you doing? We're not going to just go in and entertain people. That's always got to be a bridge for the gospel. It's got to be a bridge that we build through the love that we extend. And it's not our love. It's the love of Jesus being poured out in our hearts and extended to them. The simplicity of the gospel is the message we want to adhere to. And you know, folks, again, you, please don't send me emails. <laughs> if you look at Matthias as being the legitimate guy, that's great. I particularly have issues with that because of the, the reasons I've covered here. But are we going to see Matthias in heaven? Oh, yeah. Was he a godly man? Oh, yeah. Was he greatly used? I would imagine. I don't know. So we're not talking about, you know, foul play here. We're just talking about a matter of interpretation that I believe lines up more to where this is Peter's idea, not God's. Because we see God's idea later on. Hang with whichever one you want, but, but take the core message from it. God's ways are not our ways. They're beyond our finding out. There are times where he does things that I scratch my head, but know that he's good and that God's methods and God's motives are what we seek. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, I pray for each one of us, Lord, each one within the sound of my voice, watching online or here. I pray, Father, that you would instruct us through this passage in Acts chapter 1. And as we begin now to, 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 to round the bend with the upper room and to look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit next week, I pray, Father, that you would inspire us to spirit-filled, spirit-directed, spirit-energized living. Lord, I pray for each one that you would speak to us through this. Lord, that you would give us insight and wisdom. Lord, that we would have wide margins with dealing with others that perhaps don't have the same opinions as we do but to know, Lord, that all of it comes back to Jesus and the cross and the work that he accomplished on each of our behalves, the power of the resurrection, which we're going to begin to look at. 
So I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we further study the book of Acts, that you would open our hearts, give us instruction, give us wisdom, give us insight, give us discernment in our lives as we engage in situations and things that are going on around us. We give ourselves afresh to you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen and amen.